Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, Two Kingdoms 20th and 21st Century Edition. So this was a little bit harder for us to think through than the 16th century because the 16th century is done and we could sort of get a handle on it. But we have both lived in the 20th century and like you, we are living in the 21st and trying to sort our way through an extremely complex political landscape. So our goal here today is to give you listeners as much as possible some theological tools for thinking your way through your political uh, role and responsibility and your agency in the arena of civic discourse. There are lots of other tools you need to, like economic tools and historical tools and, uh, you know, properly political tools themselves. But what we can offer you here is a way to bring your Christian faith to bear and its theological conceptualities and um, critiques to help you figure out what the heck to do in this very confusing world that we live in. So, Dad... In our last episode, you said something that was very thought-provoking to me. You were talking about how um, there's the, well, the three kingdoms, actually, you know, God's ruling through civil authority, God's ruling through the, the church, and then the kingdom of the devil that tries to incur on them, and that the devil tries to incur on them by confusing them with one another. And it seemed to me on reflection that in the 16th century and really the whole preceding medieval period in, you know, European Christendom, so to speak, the temptation was really for the church to move in on the political sphere and become a, an active player in the business of violent coercion um, to enact what it thought was good. But it seems to me that since, um, I mean, you could trace it back probably to the uh, the revolutions the uh, in the direction of democracy, but let's say really from the 19th century onward, when we see the rise of totalizing ideologies like communism and fascism, and that actually uh, come to unfortunate flower in the 20th century, that what we see more, I think now, is the other direction in which the state, civil authority with its violent coercion, is trying to incur more and more on matters of ultimate salvation. And by that, I mean people's thoughts their minds, their loyalties, commitments, loves, and so forth, trying more and more to shape those. And well, let me let me just start with that. And then we'll we'll unpack it further. But I'd like to get your response to that to begin with. Yeah, I think I I think that that's a good way for us to start. I want to make note of the fact that we're recording this on the very day that the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump has begun in the United States Senate. And we're not going to, of course, kibitz about that one way or the other, but never in since the 1960s when the country was torn in two over the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, never in the intervening years have I as an American citizen experienced such passionate and fanatical polarization as I am witnessing in these very days. So our topic is extremely timely. And I want to make this kind of, as I answer your question about the state encroaching over the realm of conscience with claims of ultimacy uh, for itself. That's the question you put to me, and I'll get to that in just one more second. Uh, I want to bring out something that we didn't sufficiently, I think, emphasize in the last podcast regarding the 16th century doctrine of the two kingdoms, and that, that it's finally a doctrine of conscience. If the image of God doctrine means 
that I am responsible to God, my creator, for this little piece of turf in his creation over which I preside. I am responsible to God for my world. If that's what Christian anthropology fundamentally teaches about the Coram Deo relationship, it should be clear that Christian preaching speaks to conscience. It does not intervene into the empirical factual judgments that conscientious people need to make to be political actors or agents. It leaves that to the competence of individual conscience. But it does hold all of its auditors responsible to God uh, for their political activity and their political judgments. And when we talk about how the Two Kingdoms doctrine can help uh, in the current uh, situation in the uh, West, and particularly in the United States, as I'm talking about our polarization, Preachers should be able to address Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Socialists, Libertarians, whoever is sitting in their pews, and to each uh, such political self-identification speak to them in terms of Christian conscience. So for that reason alone, Christian preaching should not be partisan in the sense of, as it were, the preacher or the pastor trying to make political judgments for uh, those who come to hear the gospel, but rather the Christian gospel should make auditors responsible to God for their political judgments. There's a number of other things we can say about that, but the fundamental limitation of all political claims to totality, all these totalizing ideologies, these partisan competitions, in totalizing ideologies that want to claim you body and soul for the left or for the right or for the radical or for the establishmentarian or whatever. What they all have in common is an encroachment on conscience which belongs to God our Creator alone. So it seems to me there are two things to pull out of that. So on the one hand, there is inherently in Christianity, I don't want to call it individualism, let's call it personalism. So I think individualism suggests pulling a person away from their community and away from their relationships. And I think that is rightly a source of concern and critique. But it does say, as you said, each person, actually each conscience in a body is accountable to God for what they believe, what they say, and what they do. And that remains the fact. So that is why even even the church, to an extent, can only encroach so far on a person's soul and conscience because they are accountable finally to God, not even to the church, much less to the state or civil society that they belong to. So far, so good? So far, so good. Can that permit me to make two more uh, additions to that thought. Okay, yes. First, my conscience, my human conscience, is finite. I do not see or experience reality universally or from a uh, subspecia aeternitatis from the perspective of heaven. I see things from my own embodied particular perspective. And with that sense of conscientious responsibility to God comes the humility of recognizing my uh, finite perspective, which is limited and not comprehensive. With that comes humility. I don't know how other conscientious people see and experience the world. Instead, I must be open and listen to them to understand how others uh, 
finite creatures also experience the world, and I can't claim comprehensiveness for my take on things. Secondly, second point, my sinful temptation is always to absolutize or claim more from my finite perspective than is uh, fitting or appropriate. And that is the temptations, the titanic temptation to absoluteness from my own point of view that the doctrine of conscience attacks when it says no creature you of this particular time and place from this particular finite perspective, you are not capable of seeing things as God sees them, let alone as others sees them. So with humility and with suspicion of your own temptation to self-absolutize, with fear and trembling, you should make your political judgments answerable to God. Yeah. So that that correlates to the the second point I wanted to make, which is that if if I am called as a person in the conscience before God, then that I would think in Christian teaching requires me to see everyone else also in that same position as a conscience accountable before God, which means any kind of political narrative that requires me to see my neighbor as fundamentally my enemy or without conscience or without soul is fundamentally wrong and extremely dangerous. It's not to deny that there might be genuinely unconscientious people out there who have no desire for any accountability before God, but I don't get to make that final judgment about them. I may have a right to protect myself from the danger that they would impose on me or society to a degree, but I don't have that kind of ultimate position of judgment over against them. I have to, on principle, always start with the assumption that they are my equal, my neighbor, my conscientious counterpart, even if we have severe disagreements. Right. And what I can always, what I always have the right to do uh, with with a person whom I perceive as behaving in an unconscionable fashion, I always have a right to ask a rational question. I always have the right to ask a fair question. Why are you doing that? Why do you hold that? What are your good reasons for doing that? Now, you might get into a lot of trouble with unconscionable <laughs> people for calling them to account that way, but that's precisely the Christian perspective on political accountability, as also I hold myself accountable to our Creator, I am empowered, equipped, and enabled to hold others to account to their Creator, even if they don't like it very much. Right. Okay, so let's go from here to, I think in the first half of the show, let's talk about, you know, truly ambitiously totalizing ideologies, like what communism became and fascism and so forth, and kind of think through what about them um, made them want to make this, have this position of ultimacy vis-a-vis the person. Um, and then from there, let's move into um, our, our more immediate situation of democracy and where it came from and what Christians do or do not have invested in democracy as a political system. So to to get us into the totalizing ideology, just as we were talking now about um, the individual and the conscience, I was struck that one of the problems with my conscience and other people's conscience is that other people can make a claim against me of extreme urgency, that um, the time is now, it's kind of like uh, the, the Greek word kairos from the New Testament, that that this is the, the acceptable time, the moment of salvation, and that a lot of extreme political ideologies are totalizing ideologies adopt this position of urgency against people and against their conscience um, 
an extent to make them shut it down. So if you think about like the the build up to the various communist revolutions, there was a sense that there was this magical chirotic time, um, obviously not theistic in any way, shape, or form. Or in in the Third Reich, you know that there was this one of the reasons it succeeded among so many church people is because of the providential claim it made for itself. And the reason why this gets my attention now is because there does seem to be in our in our society this feeling of panicked urgency about do the right thing right now. The stakes are so high. If we get this wrong, everything will crumble into dust. So how do we how do we think through the the push of urgency we feel from others or from parties or from movements um, in order to maintain conscience and not fall into a totalizing narrative. Um, Go with that anywhere you will. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think the first thing to be said is like the old joke. I might be paranoid, but sometimes they really are out to get me. (laughs) Right. And I think you can say the same thing about urgency. You know, I might be suspicious of all these urgent, breathless claims But sometimes there are urgent situations, and it's a question of discernment. It's a question of of discernment. Um, And this, too, is a question of conscience. Uh, When I said earlier that one makes political judgments with fear and trembling, um, not with uh, obiter dicta such as, thus saith the Lord, I, Paul Hinlicky, know what the truth is, and this is the way it's going to be, right? That kind of, you can, in personal life, we find people like that to be verbal bullies. And we just, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them because they just browbeat you with their opinions rather than engaging in a a dialogue of respect between consciences concerned, having a common concern for a public or political good or something like that. But why did this happen? Why uh, did the 19th and 20th centuries witness the rise of these totalizing ideologies? You mentioned communism and fascism. Uh, sociologists and political theorists have invented the, the notion of political religions. And the fundamental idea here is that as the, in, we're talking about Western civilization, as the Christian religion ceased to uh, sustain a sense of European cultural unity, as it succumbed to the critique of the Enlightenment and lost its cultural sway, people were left in a spiritual vacuum, a vacuum of identity and purpose and uh, rationale for their struggles. And uh, this vacuum, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Jesus tells a parable about expelling one demon and doing nothing to uh, fill its place in the soul so that evil spirit traveled around and found seven demons worse, and they returned and filled up that empty space in that person. You know, it's a horrible little story, but I think it illustrates this point that Man does not live by bread alone. Without a vision, the people perish. Uh, If the Christian religion in European and now American civilization has lost its ability to bind the culture together in a common moral and political framework, something else is going to fill the vacuum. Here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a very interesting comment historically about what happened 
in Europe, particularly in Protestantism and Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms. He talks about the great process of secularization. Now, this word needs to be explained. The seculos is the Latin word for this epoch, this period. And so secularism is the doctrine that this life is what matters, not some future life. That's what secularism is as a religious or theological concept. Don't bother me with questions of heaven or hell or the kingdom of God or the parousia of Christ or anything like that. I'm interested in this life, this world, and that's my politics. So it should be distinguished from like a Reformation doctrine of vocation, which says that this world is the sphere of the Christian and divine activity. And it's instead of directing all religious energies towards getting to heaven that we work here on earth, but not, but secularism is saying that there's only the earth. So it doesn't, there's no heaven anyway. Right. It's a paradoxically in the name of of eliminating Christian on otherworldliness, it makes an absolute out of uh, this present epoch. So you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? Because yeah, right. history, after all, is the deity. I mean, that, that's an example of this secular theology. So Bonhoeffer writes, on the Protestant side, Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms was misinterpreted as implying the emancipation and sanctification of the world and the natural. Government, reason, economics, and culture arrogate to themselves a right of autonomy but do not in any way understand this autonomy as bringing them into opposition to Christianity. On the contrary, precisely in this they are standing. In the true service of God as the Christianity of the Reformation requires it. What has been utterly forgotten here is the original message of the Reformation, that there is no holiness of man, either in the sacred or in the profane as such, but only that which comes through the merciful and sin-forgiving word of God. So there I think, Sarah, you have an analysis that picks up on your correct affirmation of the doctrine of vocation as identifying this life here and now as the place in which the redeemed Christian is to live out the gift of holiness uh, that comes through grace and by faith. But Bonhoeffer is pointing to the way in which Lutheran theology rationalized something very different, a secularism that saw no need for the redemption of sinful humanity and then elevated the natural and the political as the total scene of human self-salvation. Okay, but just, I mean, practically speaking, how would the church, how would how would society continue to affirm its non-autonomy vis-a-vis God without a church structure there to back it up? I mean, it seems to me that if you're going to let go of the church's role in violent coercion incurring on people's lives and consciences that way, then you have to accept as the consequence that there will be plenty of people who will be perfectly happy to be released from any divine entanglement one way or another, and what you are going to get is precisely secularization on a broad scale. Well, I think that's exactly the horrible scenario that Bonhoeffer is struggling to understand. 
in his prison cell as he writes these things uh, in, in the darkest night of the Nazi regime. And what he, the conclusion he comes to is that Christendom is dead. It's done. It's over. Uh, the Corpus Christianum has collapsed. Uh, and what we have now is that it, uh, is it's, uh, it, is, it is resolved into its two components, the body of Christ on the one side and this world. But as you told us last week, he didn't say that with regret for the Corpus Christianum. He thought it was fundamentally flawed, too. Yes, he did. But he also thought that there was a... Yeah, you're right. He he, he didn't say that with regret because he's a Lutheran and he thinks that Corpus Christianum was a confusion of the two kingdoms, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, from the side of the church, where the Pope crowns the emperor and the secular authority is an extension of the rule of the papacy. Uh, and so he doesn't regret the collapse, but he sees that the collapse is, uh, as you were suggesting at the beginning as well, is now uh, proffering the opposite danger, that a vicious uh, secularism as an ideology, hostile to, to Christ and the church, and claiming absolutely for its absoluteness for itself, is now uh, become the de facto culture of the West. So in a sense, maybe the just hard truth about a fallen world is that there is always going to be violent scrabbling for the ultimate claim on human souls and bodies, and that we are always in this situation and we are always coming up with provisional solutions to keep our persons, societies, civilizations, and religions um, as... I don't know, undestroyed, <laughs> intact as possible without flipping into their opposite in the process. And that's how the Two Kingdoms Doctrine, rightly understood, can actually help, because it gives us an indispensable perspective so that we can discern what's going on. We can discern the uh, classical error of the church advocating some kind of theocracy, some kind of theocratic rule, and we can discern also the vicious secularism of the modern political religions like communism and fascism. And above all, it should help us to see the urgency of Christian preaching in this terrible situation in which people's consciences are being captivated by totalizing ideologies on the left and on the right and who knows where what other dimensions or claim going to be claiming consciences. But Christian preaching in every sermon summons people to conscientious responsibility to God for the little piece, little piece of the turf of the creation uh, uh, where I'm located, that doctrine of vocation that you referred to earlier. Without attacking others with their own ultimacy and urgency to demand action and compliance now, I would put that caveat on it. Yeah, sure, sure. But it does give us the tools to, to diagnose, to discern when these fatal confusions and all the lethal, all the bloodshed that they threaten uh, are being made. Okay, so I guess I, I guess the question that's emerging for me, and let me say it again, is that uh, probably because I've lived in fairly intact and very nonviolent Western democratic civilization most of my life, 
I guess I thought that there was a possibility of a happy medium or a, a perfectly poised balance between the two extremes. But now I, I wonder, as <laughs> we look at what's actually going on in the world and the, you know, the polarization and so other sort of threatening things you mentioned is that maybe there isn't such a thing as a balance, but the, the constant, um, oh, constant management of, of ultimate claims by people in whatever particular situation of threat they find themselves in. So I don't know if are we, are we working towards a, a happy place or are we always just holding off the worst of the extremes? Well, since I'm inclined towards the apocalyptic, I would say <laughs> yes. We're always uh, holding off the wolves at the door. And I, I think nothing irks me more than the complacency of wealthy, affluent uh, American liberals, and I don't mean Democrats or, as opposed to Republicans, because I think philosophically all Americans are liberals. But the complacency uh, in our political culture that uh, these temptations uh, to uh, totalistic uh, ideologies and uh, uh, enforcing them with coercive mechanisms are not everywhere at the door. I think you should probably unpack the, I think you're using the word liberal in the classical sense. Maybe you could unpack that. I'm drawing on something Alistair McIntyre once wrote when he said, we are all liberals, liberal liberals, conservative liberals, and radical liberals. <laughs> right. But what does that mean? Okay. Liberal is the, obviously related to our English word liberty. And so a liberal is someone who privileges liberty, privileges individual liberty historically. And that goes back to people like John Locke, uh, Second Treatise of Government and so forth. Uh, and so you always have this tension between the individual and the community. And it goes through all political thought. But a liberal on this uh spectrum of political thought is one who says the community is a necessary evil and it will crush and, and oppress individuals at any opportunity. Therefore, uh, liberals need to defend the human civil rights over against the encroachments of corporate power, whether be that state or other forms of, uh, of power. So checks and government, checks and balances in in government, and civil liberties limiting the the reach of the state that makes you a liberal. So you can see in a classic American fight between the so-called conservatives and liberals, or right and left, over abortion. But both of them are making a classically liberal appeal: one for the human right of the child in the womb, the other for the human right of the woman to do as she wishes with her own body without state control. Those are both within this world of liberalism, even though you know one is more popularly called a liberal position. It's got a double right. meaning we need to be aware of. I uh, tweaked Bob Benny some years ago in a feshrift for him when I opened my essay in his honor saying that Bob Benny is a classical liberal. <laughs> and, he, of course, everybody laughed at that because his reputation is in today's discourse of being a conservative. But I pointed out in the essay exactly this, that Bob's conservatism is that he wants to conserve classical liberalism against uh, deformations of it. 
right, right. which he sees in what we call liberal liberals. Right. Uh, or what McIntyre calls liberal liberals. And I presume there's a direct material and intellectual connection between that classical liberalism and what you identified as a Christian doctrine of, of conscience and personal accountability before God. I think there is. In fact, I would encourage our listeners to find John Locke's Letter on Toleration, uh, really a classic document uh, first making the argument for religious liberty or religious freedom over against uh, the state church, uh, something that the early Luther championed, but was ironically, as John Woody points out in his study of early Lutheran political theology, was tragically uh, stifled or or smothered uh, by the uh, establishment, uh, state establishment of the Lutheran church in Germany in the latter half of the Reformation. But in any case, John Locke's arguments in the letter on toleration read as though he cribbed them straight out of something he read in Luther. (laughs) That's all I'll say about it. Go read it for yourself. Because the fundamental argument there is that the state can only have jurisdiction over my bodily behavior so far as it acts in public and may uh, uh, affect other bodies in public. But the state has no authority over my soul, that is in my language, our conscience. And that's the fundamental reason why religious liberty uh, needs to be uh, the linchpin of classical liberalism. No one can dictate to conscience that's between every person and, as Locke put it, and their God. And that's a way in which the two kingdoms doctrine gets articulated. Okay. So, yeah. So let's use that as a bridge from the 20th into the 21st century, because what you see precisely in something like totalitarian communism or fascism is this desire not merely to control people's bodies, though they sure did, and mostly by killing bodies, but there was this really intense desire to control people's thoughts and their feelings and their deepest convictions. It was not enough to control bodies to a degree that I think is almost unprecedented in human history. And, uh, you know, we, we could spend a lot of time exploring this, and but there's there's plenty of um, uh, really fantastic and disturbing writing, recording how this happened. I, I, I got into this when I was working on my memoir about our time in Slovakia and trying to understand the communist experiment of the 20th century. But there seems to me to be this ongoing push in this direction. And I think partly it's surely the technological change that surveillance is possible to a degree that, I mean, the Soviet Union could only dream of. But um, for instance, what's happening in in China now with the way that uh, people's every move is tracked, they have like billboards advertising if you jaywalked or something and then you can't buy fast train tickets. I mean, the level (laughs) of I mean, it's it's funny, but in a I mean, it's so 1984. It's truly Orwellian in its horrors. But what what fascinates me about this is, I mean, there's a certain technological if we can, we should quality about all technologies, but that this drive towards controlling people's very thoughts, our, I think there seems to be a fundamental outrage that other people have a right to their own thoughts that we, we just, it, it creates a kind of rage. And I, I think the polarization that you named is something, a sort of upwelling of this 
profound. I mean, what I always thought of as as non-American totalitarian hatred of other people's freedom of thoughts. Um, And I guess that's where I want to try to interface now with talking about democracy and its history and if Christians have some kind of investment in it, because it's it's that mind control piece that I think disturbs me the most. Yeah. And I think democracy as a political institution can only survive in a culture in which there is a consensus that I do not see the world comprehensively, that therefore I cannot make comprehensive or total claims, that no scientific theory or social theory elevates me to that place of comprehensiveness, and that even what I do see is always simultaneously contaminated by my own sinful egoism and self-interest. As a result, I cannot, even in the contest of democratic politics with other uh, positions other than my own, I cannot absolutely, with a knockdown punch, exclude them. I can't say, this is it, you're gone, you're not entitled to your thoughts. You're just wrong, and I'm right, and if you don't shut up, I'm going to make you shut up. I mean, isn't that, doesn't that seem like where we're headed? (laughs) Yes, it does very much seem like where we're headed. But you can, to put it in American terms, if a liberal cannot say, I grant that conservatives have a point of view and a, a truth that they see from this point of view, and if conservatives cannot grant that liberals have a point of view and have a truth that they see from that point of view, if you can't acknowledge the uh, human dignity of your political opponents and your common uh, membership in the body politic, you are going to get into a winner-take-all, zero-sum conflict. And you are going to do that, above all, by the soft but powerful coercion of controlling thought. Right. Or speech. And controlling thoughts always leads to bloodshed. It seems like it's just an inevitable that they're, that the one leads to the other. It re- return of the repressed. You cannot, uh, you know, I think some of the vulgarity that's broken out in American political discourse is because of this people blowing their top and saying, you can't shut up, you can't make me shut up, and you can't tell me to stop feeling and thinking what I think, and so I'm going to, you know, just get vulgar with you and tell you to F off, you know. Right, right. I think here it's really useful to make a distinction between toleration and tolerance as it has evolved in popular culture. So to me, toleration, like your reference to Locke's letter on toleration, toleration is the political decision that I am willing to live in the same society with people that I think are profoundly wrong and misguided, whose thoughts I really wish didn't exist because I think they are that bad. But they and I have entered into a deal that we will coexist. You know, we don't have to be friends. We don't have to love each other. We don't even have to go that Christianly far in it. But, you know, we we may or may not do business with each other. 
we, you know, maintain the roads and pay the taxes together, but we grant that we will live together despite really, and I think this is important to emphasize, genuinely despising and disrespecting what the other person holds dear. And actually, I think that is the only way something like a democracy can function. But I think the way tolerance popularly has evolved, tolerance means I am not allowed to pass judgment on what anyone thinks or does or feels, that I have to accept it all as good and equal. And if I pass judgment, even in my heart of hearts, then I am doing violence, I am violating the social contract, and to a certain extent, then I am removing myself from my rights to partake in the society. Does that sound right to you? Well roared, young lion. <laughs> no, quite, quite right. And, you know, this lazy tolerance of liberal, broadly speaking, liberal complacency is part of the reason why we're in the mess that we're in right now because we haven't learned how to make rational moral arguments or moral arguments that are reasonable in public space. Uh, we, we just have to totally attack the person rather than the argument because we have no way of adjudicating moral arguments in our kind of culture anymore. Right. Uh, that's why I'm teaching theologians under Hitler right now, and my... Uh, Freshmen are all nervous because they got their first oral assignment to make a little speech. And here's the prompt. Knowing what I know, what would I say to a sincere Nazi? Mm, right, right. Yeah, you've mentioned before that you, you, uh, you put that on your students and they sometimes have a hard time coming up with a good answer. Yeah, the, cla the classic one to illustrate your uh, lazy tolerance is the young woman some years back who said to me, after really being uncomfortable and squirming in her seat, she finally said, well, 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 it's not for me, but if it helps you, who am I to judge? Right. Well, your your Jewish neighbor is being deported to the camps. That's... <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah, right. Right, right. So, okay, yeah. so then we've established so far that... Um, the primal thing is respect of conscience that is matched by respect and acknowledgement of my neighbor as also a person of conscience. And I think that the toleration piece requires to add another one, which is the love of the enemy, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon right. on the Mount. And so that is... It is unnatural even for the most pious of Christian believers or any religious person to do. But actually, that seems to also be a requirement for a political experiment like democracy to work is that even though I despise what my enemy within my society believes, I nevertheless tolerate his or her right to be there. Yeah, that's right. Toleration in that sense is love of enemy. I think you're exactly right about that. Okay, so now let me ask another huge, unanswerably hard question, <laughs> which is, if these are, you know, these three things, conscience, neighborliness, and love of, of enemies are fundamental, and you've just observed that our, our American society no longer knows how to have a moral argument, is that because somehow, or here's the big unanswerable question, democracy was always premised on a religious, spiritual, and cultural capital that it could simply presume and never have to, and thought it never had to reinvest in. And if that is the case, how in fact do you reinvest in that capital without going back to a theocratic model? Small question. Well, I think, you know, again, I, I'm very deeply informed by these things by Bonhoeffer. And uh, 
to answer the first part of your question, I agree with him. Uh, when he was trying to explain the differences, you know, he lived in the United States, States for periods of time and in deeply inhaled uh, the thinking of that time, especially he had a friendship with Reinhold Niebuhr that I think was very important to him. Uh, but uh, what he said when he compared European democracy, which traces itself to the French Revolution, and then he contrasted that with the democracy in the American Revolution, he, he made this statement. The American Revolution was almost contemporary with the French one, and politically the two were not unconnected, yet they were profoundly different in character. The American democracy is not founded upon the emancipated man, but, quite the contrary, upon the kingdom of God and the limitation of all earthly powers by the sovereignty of God. American historians can say that the federal constitution was written by men who were conscious of original sin and of the wickedness of the human heart. So, is there a kind of religious foundation to the American democracy? Yes, but it's not what you expect if you're looking for theocracy. It's the theocracy of the kingdom of God, which is not the political regime, but which is the limitation of all earthly political sovereignty, the fundamental limitation. As we've been talking about it, the limitation is you cannot claim authority over conscience and the practical implications of that. You cannot limit freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, or freedom of speech. The state is limited by those superior prerogatives of the kingdom of God, according to Bonhoeffer. And why is that such a salutary doctrine? Because it comes with the awareness that, that the sinful temptation to absolutize my own perspective infects all politics and that uh, disease leads to tyranny and uh, loss of liberty and all the other horrors of the totalitarianisms of the 20th century. So that's one part of the answer to your question. Yes, there is a religious Christian basis for the American experiment in democracy, but it's not theocracy in the sense of, of Iran, Iran's theocracy or anything like that. So it's not it's not the superstructure, but I guess my question then is, what if it's the multiple sub-basements that are deep down below it? And if those are no longer there, does it become... Does it remain self-evident, as the as the founding documents of America say, does it remain self-evident to people that there is a right to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, or when those sub-basements are eroded, then suddenly you can ask again, well, why should I allow these people with their horrible religion or their horrible political theories or their horrible um, 
fascination with guns or defense of abortion rights or whatever. Why should I let them exist? Um, you know, and I would just want like to say for the record, I, I, I hope the answer is not <laughs> that it's necessary to have these sub basements because then I think we're headed towards a really dark time. On the other hand, I mean, in, in historical reality, these kind of movements did arise on the soil of a deep history of Christian civilization and its internal battles. So I don't I don't know how to adjudicate between those two things. Well, I think we have to say a couple of things here. When Bonhoeffer wrote this 80 years ago, right, the cultural process of secularization was not nearly as advanced in the North America as it was in Europe. Uh, and today, I think the United States is culturally quite caught up with European secularism in the sense we defined it earlier. And I want to come back to Robert Erickson, the historian who wrote Theologians Under Hitler, borrowed from Alistair McIntyre the notion of a double crisis of modernity, which has eroded this cultural foundation of modern Western democracy as we're talking about it. The first crisis of modernity was the Enlightenment's critique of the antecedent religion of Christianity, which had already due to the schism of the 16th century, weakened itself enormously. But the Enlightenment critics made it very difficult for elite intelligentsia in Europe any longer to believe in the religious foundation of morality, whether that be Moses or Jesus or perhaps Muhammad or something like that. So they went searching for a rational foundation for morality. The apex of that is Immanuel Kant and his doctrine of the categorical imperative, which is a secularization of the golden rule uh, and so forth. And then the second crisis of modernity is the revolt of the children of rationalism, the masters of suspicion, um, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud each who in their own way said, reason is not in charge. Reason is the dutiful servant of unconscious forces which motivate human beings in what they do. So for Marx, reason is the ideological justification of privileged relationships to the economic power. For Nietzsche, philosophy uh, and morals and religion and Christianity are the rationalization of the will to power. Uh, for Freud, rationalization of the libido. All of these unconscious forces are what really determine human beings, and reason is their servile instrument, trying to put a good face on the iron cage of modernity in which we find ourselves. So in that, Bonhoeffer is dealing with that cultural collapse in Weimar Germany and trying to understand what has happened to Christian Europe. In my view, I think the same processes are now quite catching up to us in the United States. Well, I hope that the political manifestation is not as bad as where Weimar Germany went shortly thereafter. Well, I, I hope so too, but I think it's a serious concern and I don't want to give the impression that I one-sidedly think that this is the, uh, the uh, work of J Donald J. Trump. I think Trump is more than anything a, a symptom of these 
kinds of changes that we're talking about right? Uh, uh, rather than a cause. Right, right. Yeah, well, and it seems that it's a symptom that caught everybody by surprise. We There must have been lots of other symptoms along the way that we weren't paying attention to, or like you said, we're just complacently ignoring all along the way. So, so then it seems to me, okay, this is something else I learned when I was studying about Slovakia's history, and I can't believe the concept had never been introduced to me in my entire education, and that's of civil society, which means the um, non-government public space and and most cases, non-officially religious space, but the place in which um, humans in a society interact with each other in lots of different ways that are not um, explicitly oriented towards their self-governments or their regulation of ultimate things. And one of the, the arguments made is that democracy requires a large civil space to flourish. And that so by contrast, a totalitarian society like communism had to destroy civil space because by definition, anything apolitical was anti-party and therefore a threat. So in a bizarre example, a 700,000 member gymnastics organization called Sokol in democratic Czechoslovakia was shut down when the communist takeover happened because gymnastics are clearly threatening to political hegemony on the part of the communists, um, which sounds insane to us. But the, the point is actually really relevant here, which is that I guess what I I'm, I'm want to explore then is, is the way that you reinvest in the capital of your society, not necessarily, or at least not only political activism with the sense of ultimacy and urgency, but the reinvestment in civil society as the necessary, if somewhat invisible, counterpart of a successful democracy of toleration. In terms of democratic theory, I think that's exactly right. Civil rights are meant not only to protect individuals from government intrusion, uh, but one of those fundamental individual rights is freedom of association. And the, the little uh, units of civil society, and we could actually, in this respect, include churches and synagogues and mosques as voluntary organizations. In a non-theocratic state, yeah. Yeah, in a non-theocratic state. They're, in fact, vital components of civil society. And uh, all of these uh, uh, kinds of voluntary associations are places where people primarily live their, let me use this word, political lives. When they get involved in organizations, when they negotiate with others, when they come to a consensus, when they figure out how to finance their projects, all these political skills and pra are learned by these practices not by running for office or getting people to sign petitions, that too, of course, but primarily they're learned in this space of civil society. And when these uh, uh, spaces shrink and are pressed out of existence, then democracy is losing that sphere of pre-political culture 
on which it depends. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it, pre-political culture. I guess then also you could see that maybe a primary area of political concern that has certainly been raised is, again, how um, technology and to a certain extent, um, like um, city regulations, limit people's encounters with non-affiliative minds. So for example, like it's well known that um, it, Facebook shows you stuff that you are likely to like, which means stuff you are likely to agree with. So you bec- you develop a very distorted view of what the world thinks because you're only seeing yeah. stuff that you're already programmed to like and you know have the, the self-reinforcing confirmation bias happening. But you also see it in, again, things that aren't normally thought of as political issues, but say like, like zoning or density restrictions in cities that um, just by their their very nature continually segregate, not on ideological grounds, but surely like uh, practical regulatory grounds, wealthy people from poor people, uh, different races from one another. And so the, the place for that pre-political engagement to take place shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And that can, I would think, can only exacerbate the, you know, the more obvious political um, hatreds that have been developing so rapidly. Right. Yeah, and I would like, you know, as, as we got to start, I suppose, drawing this towards a conclusion, uh, I, I would like to say here, uh, how do you, how do you use the two kingdoms doctrine in this uh, cr- double crisis of modernity, this shaking of the foundations uh of democratic self-government that we seem to be experiencing and what particularly should Christians and Christian ministers do about this? I'd like to say a couple of things. They need to preach and teach the doctrine of conscience in such a way that in their preaching and teaching, they make their auditors responsible to God for their world, including their politics. Secondly, they should defanaticize democratic politics by pointing out that all of our political judgments are conditioned by our finitude and our egoism, and none are immune from this, and therefore it is with humility that one ventures a political judgment. And the sign of fanaticism is when you attack someone who disagrees with you as a bad person uh, and instead of engaging the concern that they have and uh, finding, as Luther would say, put the best construction on everything, finding the good concern, maybe a diamond in the rough, but the good concern that your opponent may have and proceeding from there to create a political negotiation. Third, pastors especially should recognize that partisan interventions in this context are not only counterproductive because you alienate half of your audience or you reduce your congregation to the choir that becomes your echo chamber, but partisan interventions simply throw fuel on the fire of a house that is in danger of burning down. What we need instead is for pastors to recognize that they are preachers of the gospel and teachers of theology. And they do that uh, in 
creating a caring community of Christ's people through word and sacrament. And that fulfills this civil function, this civil society function. It uh, enables the practices of democracy on a small scale, and it is it, it helps people uh, through the ministries, especially the charitable and justice ministries of the church, it helps people discover the other perspectives that are not their own and puts them into a place of safe and constructive dialogue with selves other than their own. So if you want to save the democracy, my quick answer is build up the church. Hmm. All right. Well, here here's my concluding um, rules of thumb to go with yours. The first is don't attempt to enslave anyone else's mind or regulate their speech because they are a conscience accountable before God and you are not their God. And on the flip side, don't allow anyone else to enslave your mind or regulate your speech. You are entitled to your own mind and your own speech, though you are, again, accountable to God for it. The second thing I would say is invest in civil society. So that is certainly the church, but also anything else. I mean, I don't know, stamp collecting or African violets or, you know, <laughs> clean up the highway. I don't know, whatever it takes to, to get you more entangled with other citizens of your society, however um, unlikely they might be. And the third, I would say, is be very suspicious of all forms of panicked urgency. And this applies as much to religion as to politics. A lot of the worst things that have erupted in religion are are urgent, like right now. If you don't do it right now, God's kingdom won't come. You know, that, uh, as Luther says, God's kingdom will come whether or not we do anything about it. So anyone who says you have to act now for God's kingdom to come, you should be suspicious of that. And in the same way, be suspicious of claims of political ultimacy, that it is this this policy, this party, this candidate who is going to change everything around, make it better, is messianic in his or her um, uh, hope for the world and so forth. Never, ever believe that, because in the immortal words of the who... <laughs> I think that was the last word on the 60s, actually. So, <laughs> Yeah, and it, this should be so second nature to us. Mark chapter 13, the little apocalypse. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Do not believe them. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. We don't need a political messiah. Christians, we already have a savior. Amen. Amen. All right. With that, let's go forward boldly and fearlessly into 2020. All right. Well, next time we're going to do a, a final episode dealing with these issues, but we're going to set it in a very different context. We will be talking about um, an Ethiopian Lutheran couple. Hi, Tolesa. She is the wife who was imprisoned and tortured for 10 years by the um, communist Derg regime. And her husband, Gudina Tumsa, who was the head of the Ethiopian Lutheran Church, kidnapped and assassinated. He has been called the Ethiopian Bonhoeffer. So more on their story next time. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.